Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Our scripture for today is in Luke 8, verses 22 to 39. So, In our text today, we're going to see two honestly terrifying situations. We're going to see a brutal storm, a brutal windstorm, and a man possessed by many demons. Two very terrifying situations for our disciples to be in. But they will quickly find out what is scarier than a brutal storm or a man filled with many demons, and that is Jesus, a man who is both fully man and fully God, who can rebuke the winds and the waves, and who can give permission for the demons to die. Now, Jesus has done plenty of miracles before this. Previously in the book of Luke, we have seen him cleanse lepers, free others from demons, and even raise people from the dead. But specifically, we're going to look at the reactions of those who are with Jesus, as Luke puts heavy emphasis on the reactions of the onlookers, of the disciples, of the townspeople. When these onlookers are confronted with what Jesus has done, when confronted with his power, how do they respond? Do they hide away in fear or choose to follow him in faith? Let's read our text today and find out. Luke 8, starting in verse 22. One day he, referring to Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they were sailing, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down onto the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke, and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they, they marveled, and they were afraid, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Then they sailed to the country of Gerasens, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, they met a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept on the guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him, not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a herd, large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herd's people saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasens asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with them. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would bless our time in your word today. 
Lord, I pray that we would see you clearly, that we would see your power clearly, Lord, and that we would leave this time together glorifying you and seeking you more. In Christ's name, amen. So we start out with Jesus and his disciples sailing across a lake. This lake is actually called the Sea of Galilee, uh, hence the explanation in verse 26, that they're near the region of Galilee. This freshwater lake is the largest freshwater lake in Israel. It's around 64 square miles, which is roughly around the size of Washington, D.C. It's also one of the lowest freshwater lakes in the entire world, being almost 700 feet below sea level. And if you know anything about weather, you mean that because it's so low, windstorms coming down are actually fairly common. Now, Jesus takes this opportunity for a nice sail across the lake to take a nap, which makes sense considering all that we have read previously in Luke, he's had a pretty busy schedule, right? He's been healing, he's been preaching. Even though this may seem like something to easily glance over, this right here is one of the biggest examples of Jesus's humanity. Who among us hasn't wanted to take a nap after a busy day? I can guarantee around a quarter of you are going to take a nice post-church nap nap after this. Not only that, but Jesus was so tired, the boat rocking and swaying back and forth didn't wake him. The disciples had to go down to wake him up. And the nature of Jesus' humanity here is even crazier considering what happens next. We read in verse 23 that the huge windstorm came down onto the lake. And the actual Greek word here for windstorm windstorm is laolaps, which can be translated as a ferocious storm, even sometimes translated as a hurricane. So this was a big deal. This is a real life or death situation. The end of verse 23 says that they were filling up with water and were in danger. Now, this wasn't the disciples getting nervous for no reason. This lake was known for sudden windstorms. Remember, it was fairly below sea level. And remember that some of these disciples were fishermen that spent a lot of time on the water. They had plenty of experience dealing with storms, and yet they're freaking out. Going to Jesus said that they are perishing, that they're going to die. Just imagine it with me. You're on a simple sail across a lake the size of D.C. Shouldn't take more than a couple hours, maybe. And then suddenly, a storm that is comparable to even a hurricane surrounds you at all turns. The boat is starting to take on water, and you know that if you fall off this boat, even though you know how to swim, you are no match for those waves. Your life is flashing before your eyes. You know the ship can't take any more of these intense winds. You're surprised that the boat hasn't been torn in half at this point. You're barely able to make it down into the ship to wake up Jesus. You're able to get him awake. You tell him that you're all about to die. You're hoping that he's going to teleport you to safety or go and take command of the ship, otherwise save you from the storm. But instead, Jesus goes up and he rebukes the wind, and the waves, and they suddenly stop. And it's quiet. And it's calm. Like nothing ever happened. It must have been absolutely wild to see how quickly the situation went from danger to calm. And notice here that 
Jesus didn't save the disciples in a way that avoided the storm. He didn't tell them all to hold hands so that he could teleport them to land. Like I said, he didn't grab control of the boat and be like, don't worry, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm the best sea captain out here. No. He didn't say, let's go down into the boat and tough it out. He didn't avoid the storm. He stopped it. Because he is greater than the storm. He created the storm. He is God over the storm. And while the disciples are still shocked at what they just saw, Jesus turns and says to them, where is your faith? Now, I think for us here today, it's kind of easy to side with Jesus, right? Come on, disciples, you should have known better. He's God. But remember that up until this point, Jesus had healed people, he's raised people from the dead, but he hasn't controlled nature. This was a whole new godly aspect of Jesus that they just haven't seen yet. And still today, please, afterwards, correct me if I'm wrong, but we have never seen anyone go out and rebuke the weather and it obeys. Only Jesus, only God has done that, even today. We have doctors that heal people. If you get lucky, you can maybe resurrect people with CPR. But no one, even today, has controlled the weather with their voice. Now, this event also fulfills Psalm 107, specifically in verses 28 to 30. The psalmist writes, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Now, as God, Jesus tells the disciples to have faith in him. He commands them to not forget that he is God, even though he was just napping. He was just sleeping like a human. And that's what we see on this boat. We see the disciples confronted with the real Jesus, 100% God and 100% man. He rests and takes a quick nap, so he's human. He's able to command the weather with just his voice, So he is God. And how do the disciples react to seeing this true Jesus? Look at the second half of verse 25. And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? They were afraid of who this person was. This person who is fully man and fully God who can control the weather, the winds and the waves. But they were also amazed by him, amazed at what he just done, amazed at his command over everything. And I'm sure we've all felt this kind of amazement slash fear before. I remember being in Yellowstone National Park and seeing a beautiful, majestic bison. I mean, those things are like, they're huge, walking in the distance. I was certainly amazed by it, but then, true story, its eyes kind of moved over saw me, and then it started walking towards me. And you bet that that amazement really quickly turned to fear. Because if that thing wanted to kill me, I'd, I'd be dead. There was nothing I could do about that. Or consider a massive nor'easter blizzard that we often get up here, right? With howling winds and snow. You can prepare, you can get candles ready, you can uh, start a fire for warmth. But you cannot stop that act of God. And yet you are afraid 
that your house is going to topple over, you're afraid that you're going to lose power, but yet you look outside and you're amazed that it's just a curtain of white. Fear and amazement. So when faced with somebody who just took a nap, only to wake up and rebuke the winds and the waves, and they obey? I think fear is certainly a correct feeling to have, as well as amazement. And it's that combination of the two that leads to reverence and worship. The Proverbs say many times that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowing who the Lord is to bring about a healthy amount of fear. Because God can do things we can never do and has control over things that we fear to be uncontrollable and yet God controls it with ease because he created them. So the disciples' reaction to both fear and amazement in Jesus should lead to worship. And you know, Luke doesn't write that any of them jump ship fearing to be next to Jesus anymore. I would hope that this would lead to greater worship from the disciples, greater understanding and greater attention to who Jesus is. Wow, this guy is awesome. I'm a little scared, but I want to hear what he has to say. Fear and amazement. In our next section, we'll see a reaction that is just plain fear. We'll see a group exposed to the godly nature of Jesus as he heals a man possessed with many demons. Now, this situation in verses 27 through 30 that we read earlier, this is quite the weird and honestly terrifying situation, right? You have a man that lives in a cemetery among the tombs, naked and very strong. As any time the town tried to guard him or bound him down, he would break out and escape, running into the desert. Now, we all know how the local news loves to show when a bear enters into people's backyards, right? And then we laugh when it swings on the swing set or plays around with a tire swing, but we're kind of afraid of it, but we love to see it, right? But then it moves on and we all quickly forget about it. Now, imagine if your town had a crazed bear that was in the cemetery, unable to be chained down or caught. You wouldn't want to go anywhere near there. This is that situation, although this man calls himself legion, as many demons were inside of him. Now, a Roman legion of soldiers would, have, would refer to almost 6,000 soldiers. So there could have been that same amount of demons inside this man that could possibly explain why he was so strong, why he was able to evade capture. But that's terrifying. It's terrifying. But look at what this demon-possessed, crazed man does when he sees Jesus in verse 28. He cries, begging Jesus not to torment him. Not only that, but he refers to Jesus as son of the most high God. He knows who Jesus is. The demons know who Jesus is compared to the disciples in our last section who wondered who this man could possibly be that could control the winds and the waves. It's honestly a sobering reminder of the spiritual reality that demons and angels exist and they, knew, they know perfectly well who Jesus is. It's often us that need to catch up, not them. In addition, this is completely different from how pop, pop culture uh, depicts demon possession, right? 
This legion doesn't have a spinning head spewing vomit everywhere. He's not speaking with a low growling voice crawling up the walls. No. He is begging for mercy from Jesus. Now, remember that story about the bison in Yellowstone that I told a few minutes ago. Imagine if that bison had started to charge towards me and then suddenly stopped cowering and whimpering in fear, ran away. I would turn around and maybe I would see behind me the head park ranger who the bison fears. The bison knows that that park ranger has the authority to kill him if needed. So when he says stop, the bison stops. Just like seeing a bison when you have that park ranger behind you, you are protected from demons when you have Jesus. The demons fear Jesus, and you are on Jesus' side. So, direct your fear to the ones who the demons fear, not the demons themselves. Submit to Christ and his ways, fleeing from temptation, getting a pure heart, And you won't have to fear anything spiritual. So, Jesus commands the unclean spirits to come out of the man. And we see starting in verse 31 that the demon again begs Jesus for mercy. This time asking him not to command them to enter into the abyss. Now this abyss referred to here is the same as the bottomless pit referred to in Revelation 20. In Revelation 20, it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, there it is, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit, there it is again, and shut it and sealed it over him. This this abyss, this bottomless pit, is where the evil spirits, including Satan, will eventually go and be held. So instead of going into that abyss, the legion begs Jesus to let him enter into a herd of pigs. Jesus gives permission, and the demons enter into those pigs and then rush down into the lake and drown. Jesus doesn't order the demons to do this. He gives permission, and I think it's safe to assume that the demons thought that whatever would happen to them inside that herd of pigs would be far better than whatever Jesus himself would do to them. And I think they're right based on what we just read from Revelation. Now the herd of pigs rush down into the lake. They drown. Situation is dealt with. There's no herd of demonic pigs causing chaos on the town. Everything is calm yet again. Now there's something really interesting in this conversation that Jesus has with the legion. Notice that Jesus commands the unclean spirit to come out. He asks the man what his name is. He gives permission for the spirits to enter into the pigs. Jesus is able to overcome an entire legion of demons with just his voice. He doesn't wrestle for control over the demons. He doesn't have to fight them. He doesn't have to get out a wooden cross and say the power of Christ compels you. I know that wouldn't make sense anyway because the cross hasn't happened yet. But he doesn't need to do any of that. He doesn't even have to do anything. The legion gives up as soon as it sees Jesus. Throwing itself to the ground to beg for mercy. 
Just like the winds and the waves, Jesus is able to control that which we are unable to even fathom controlling with just his voice. No straining, no back and forth, no fighting, no struggle, just his voice. This is the same God that spoke everything into existence with just his voice, all the way back in Genesis 1. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be land. And God said, let there be vegetation and fish and animals and even man created in his own image. All of it, he created with just his voice. So all of it, he controls with just his voice. As God himself says in the book of Isaiah, my words shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And God's voice is still just as powerful today as he has spoken in his word. What we read every Sunday here in church, what we study in growth groups and individually at home, that has the same power as Jesus' words spoken in our section today, as the power rests in God, not the avenue in which we receive it. God's words don't suddenly lose power because it's written down rather than spoken to, by him in the moment. That would mean that the ink and paper of our Bibles today could limit God's power, which it cannot. God created that ink and paper. It submits to him. It exists to give God glory by bearing his words. God's word is powerful. That's why Hebrews 4 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And church, even our tongues were created by God to glorify him. That is why it is sinful when we don't when we use it to curse one another, when we use our words to hate one another, to even curse our God who created us. Now, the word of God is not only what we read today, but it's also who we read today. John explicitly describes Jesus as the word of God. He writes, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God, and the word of God incarnate. He is all-powerful, able to control the winds and the waves with just his voice and cause legions of demons to beg for mercy. Now, this is a sort of power that demands a response. So let's continue and see the reaction from the townspeople that were there. The crowd that was there that saw this happen, they saw the herd of pigs rust down. They immediately run away from the situation to tell everyone what happened. I bet they were saying, you wouldn't believe what had happened by, to the legion that was just by the tombs. You wouldn't believe it. 
Remember, the city knows about this legion, right? Because they have been trying to chain him down. They tried to control him. This is probably why the people, once they hear about this, they have to see what happened. They've tried too many times to rid themselves of this issue, and yet some guy comes from a lake and does it immediately? And when they come, they are confronted with a startling image. The man who they knew to be crazy, naked by the tombs, unable to be chained down, is now fully clothed and in his right mind at the feet of Jesus. I'd imagine it would kind of be like those videos that you see online of normally ferocious tigers playing like house cats with zookeepers, right? Something you normally know as ferocious and terrifying, acting like a child. Now, you would expect the townspeople to go up to Jesus, shaking his hand, asking what he'd done, maybe asking if he could come back to their place and deal with their crazy child, right? You expect a few of them to welcome him into their home, to give him a nice meal, a good night's rest after a perilous journey across the lake. Instead, the townspeople are terrified of Jesus. The text says that they were seized with fear. They couldn't move. You could almost hear their train of thought, right? If he can do that to a legion of demons, imagine what he could do to us. We couldn't even contain the legion, and he put it in its place with just his voice. What if he turns on us? What if he decides to attack us? Not to mention that the herd of pigs that the legion went into died. That was probably a huge financial loss for the herdsmen, and they were likely upset. Jesus, you stay, you stay away from my cows. You stay away from my house. Compared to the disciples on the boat, who were amazed and afraid, these townspeople are just plain afraid. They have just witnessed incredible power from Jesus. And instead of wanting to know more about him and hearing about how else he can help them, they ask him to leave because they are afraid of him. What a devastating missed opportunity, right? Now, I think normally today, In 2023, we have the opposite problem, right? People either don't believe Jesus' words or don't believe he has the power to save. When we try to tell others about Jesus, they would say, well, maybe if I saw it from my own eyes, I'd believe it, right? This story shows that even that might not be the case. There are plenty of times in the Bible, even in Luke, where people demand Jesus to stay and show off more miracles, So what's different here? Why are they telling him to leave? Because here, if we're being honest with ourselves, Jesus' power is threatening. It's scary. It's terrifying. It demands a response. When something terrifying, like a legion of demons, is reduced to childlike submission, you tend to be scared of what got it there. The question is, will you react in thankful amazement or repulsive fear? It's the difference between some people who find it amazing and cool when a Venus flytrap eats a wasp and some people like me who are now scared that the Venus flytrap could eat me. So when faced with these historical accounts of Jesus' power and words, 
What is your reaction? It's certainly not wrong to have a healthy fear of Jesus. After all, let's be honest, He is God and the creator of everything and everyone who will come to judge both the living and the dead and send Satan down into the abyss. But will you be like the disciples and let fear couple up with amazement and wonder who is this and desire to know him more, to follow him more? Will the accounts of Jesus cause you to read more about him, to seek him, to seek him in worship, to pray to him? Or will you be like the townspeople? Will you let fear develop into anger and even passivity and push him away? Will you let fear of losing your lifestyle or comfort, will you let that, let you ignore him or push him away? Will you fear his reaction to knowing the real you? So you push him out. Do you not believe what he says that you can be forgiven? Again, in 2023, when people hear the word of God and hear of the power of God, I don't think most people react in their fear the same way that the townspeople did today. We don't have an angry mob outside of our church trying to push us out of town or try to ban the Bible. I know that has happened in history, but we don't see that happening today in Situate, Massachusetts. I think instead, in our current culture, we just see people ignore Jesus. I think people know the Sunday school notes of who Jesus is and what he has done. They know he died on a cross to save them from their sins, but they choose not to believe it. They ignore it. Maybe some of you feel that way here too. Maybe people don't believe that they're sinful even though everyone says things like nobody's perfect. Maybe they think Christianity is just useful for a morality lesson, like a bedtime story. Maybe they wrestle with the existence of God in suffering or God in science or God in other religions, even though the Bible reconciles all of that. Maybe they don't want to submit to a greater authority to be told how to live their lives. Either way, the notion of who Jesus really is is 100% man and 100% God, that notion scares people. It scares me. But just like a scared child at night, hiding under the covers, fearing they heard a monster, they are missing out on a loving father coming in to tuck them into bed. So church, do you ignore his words, hoping they'll make them disappear? Do you read the Bible and think, that didn't really happen? Because if it does, I got to do something. Or do you just read the Bible looking for that instant quotable wisdom so you can move on with your life instead of getting to know the real Jesus but I tell you, just as God's words being put into ink and paper does not diminish their power, ignoring them will not cease them to be spoken. Jesus says in Matthew that heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. 
Just like ignoring to do taxes and then being faced with the IRS knocking on your door, we know that choosing to ignore Jesus does not work out in the long run. Paul gives this warning in Romans 1, speaking of those who know God's existence but choose to ignore him or push him away. Paul writes, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, even though it's disappointing to see how the townspeople respond, especially knowing what happens to people in the Gospels who accept Jesus into their homes, who ask him more, It's disappointing to see these townspeople push him away. But yet, there is a glimmer of hope. Look again at verses 38 to 39 with me as we close. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, "Return return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now this is the kind of amazement and fear that the disciples had, one that pushes to evangelism and worship. The man feared the demons inside of him, but the demons feared Jesus. Once the demons were gone, this man had a choice to flee the bigger threat that had appeared or submit to a new master, a much better one, one who doesn't flee into pigs when challenged. He wanted to know Jesus because he was amazed. And so it is with us. We may not be about to perish in a boat facing a terrifying windstorm, but we are certainly overwhelmed at all sides by our sin. No matter how much we go into the boat to hide, no matter how much we grab the steering wheel and try to steer ourselves away, we cannot flee from this storm. We need Jesus to come and remove our sins like he removed that storm, to flee, to free us from it. And just as his voice stops the winds and the waves, Just as his voice says, you are forgiven, we are forgiven. We may not have been possessed by 6,000 demons, but we had hearts of stones and we were slaves to sin. Just as the legion wasn't able to be chained down, we cannot control our own sin, it controls us. We are woefully unable to free ourselves. Only Jesus can free us. So like this man, we must fall at his feet and beg for mercy. And thankfully, Jesus gives us that mercy. He didn't just give permission for our sins to go into some pigs and die. No, he took on those sins himself. And he gave himself permission to die. He gave up his own spirit on the cross. 
Jesus saving this man from the demons, saving the disciples from the storm, was only a glimpse at his future saving of us from the very grasp of Satan himself. If the disciples marveled at Jesus after he removes the storm, how much should we marvel at him after removing our sins? And if the man goes into the city rejoicing over 6,000 demons being removed, how much should we go into the city and evangelize after an unlimited number of sins being removed from us as far as the east is from the west? We need Jesus infinitely more than they did. And thankfully for those who believe, Jesus has infinitely fulfilled that need. Let's close with this encouragement from Paul in 1 Corinthians. Paul writes, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord.